coma. Yeah, Got to be exciting. All right, we're going to jump right back in. What I want to talk about this afternoon is, what is the kingdom? And as I talked this morning, uh, I was sharing how, you know, really, these two sessions that I'm going to be dealing with today are some of the most fundamental sessions. Uh, you could put them in either order, but our definition of the kingdom is, is really an important issue. You know, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Now, in the last number of years, there's been a lot more talk about the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, matter of fact, a lot of teachers have been making a, uh, a contrasting the gospel of salvation over and above the gospel of the kingdom. And I think that's a valid contrast. They are not the same thing. The gospel of salvation is a portion of the gospel of the kingdom, but it's not the whole thing. So what, is the, what does the Bible mean by this idea of the gospel of the kingdom? Before we get into that, uh, I know for me, I, you know, I've been in full-time ministry since 88, I guess. Uh, and so over those years, for many years, uh, I had a lot of leftover parts. I'm like, like most guys, I don't read the instructions. You know, you get something for your kids for Christmas, you're going to put it together. And ah, I don't need those instructions, or I don't need to ask directions. And you end up way out in la-la land, and then you got to ask. Or you make your kid their Christmas present, and there's leftover parts, and you think, oh, this ain't good. <laughs> I'm sure those were for something. And uh, that's how I felt theologically. Man, there were things that I knew the Lord had spoken to me about. There are things that I saw in the Word that I knew were true, but they didn't spit within my box. And so I had all these spare parts off to the side, and I didn't know where they fit. Back in 08, I was telling you this morning, we had this move of God, and well, that's when I met uh, my, one of my spiritual fathers, and 8-8 uh, eight, eight of 08, we invited a man named Jack Taylor to our church, and Jack came and ministered, and he became a spiritual father to me. And Jack was known for two things, wisdom and his teaching on the kingdom. And he brought this message on the kingdom that when he was done, all of a sudden, I'd been given a bigger box. He provided me with a container that fit all the parts, and it set me back to the drawing table. Jack passed away last year. He's with the Lord now, and uh, living out the glorious existence he had explained to us for all these years. But he just brought this very simple message on the kingdom of God. And uh, he had a couple of one-liners that really became a reference point for me. One of the things he said was, all of the church is in the kingdom, and not all the kingdoms in the church. He said the, king, or the church is merely a subsidiary of the kingdom. You see, up until that time, to me, I, was, I had a church-centric theology. I thought the church was the box. And if it doesn't fit inside the church, I didn't know what to do with it. I had some leftover parts. Matter of fact, the entire, and we're going to look at this tomorrow, the whole, the whole concept of apostolic and even prophetic ministry didn't really fit within my theological box because my box was too small. There were a number of things. The whole idea of the, the church. Uh, I, in, in disconnecting, if you... Well, let me put it this way. When I was in Bible school, I was taught that the church and the kingdom were synonymous, which is untrue. So when you make the church and the kingdom synonymous, you at first make the church more than it's meant to be, but you also unplug it from its source, so it ultimately becomes much less than it was meant to be. It's like an embassy, a lot of pomp and circumstance and important people walking around, but it's got no nation to represent. It's just a figure, you know, it's, it's a, uh, an extravagant organization with no authority because the, uh, the authority of the church is in the kingdom. And in the New Testament, there are very specific words, and they're not interchangeable. That the Greek word for kingdom is basileia. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. They are not interchangeable. Those are two separate words. And so... Uh, I had to go back to the drawing board and really begin to ask the Lord about some of these things. And it was so helpful for me. It set us on a journey uh, understanding the, the kingdom. And really, a lot of things begin to make sense. The whole concept of apostolic 
the apostolic gift, the sent one. The sent one is a sent one from the kingdom. And so we, it begs the question, what does Jesus mean when he uses the term the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Matter of fact, Jesus' gospel was the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. One day my secretary walked in and she said, Pastor, you got, you got a second? I said, yeah. She said, I've got a question. She said, how can it be that in Matthew 4, Jesus is talking and it says, and with many other words, he preached the kingdom. But it wasn't until Matthew 16 that we talked about this morning that he begins to talk about his suffering. And I said, what do you mean by that? She said, well, if he wasn't talking about his suffering, his death, he wasn't talking about that, what was the content of the gospel that he was preaching in Matthew 4? And like a very wise pastor, I said, let me get back to you on that. It really stumped me out that, man, that kind of wigs me out. What is that? How could he be preaching the gospel if he wasn't preaching about his death? So could it be that the gospel is much bigger than we realized? And the answer to that question is really something that's, that's begun to be unpacked in recent days where people are juxtaposing these two concepts, the gospel of salvation and the gospel of the kingdom. Those are two separate things. Now, not two separate things. Again, the gospel of salvation fits within the gospel of the kingdom, this wider emphasis, but which, by the way, was the message of Jesus. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. It's what he preached. It's what he taught his disciples to pray for. He taught his disciples to preach. It's the one subject that he preached on after his resurrection. After the resurrection and before the ascension, the only subject matter it, it states that Jesus taught on, it said for those days he taught on the kingdom of God. What does that mean? If the, if the kingdom and the church are not synonymous, well then what is the kingdom? What does that mean? And we throw those terms around, but if we don't understand what it means, we can't really carry the message unless we can articulate it, unless we can really explain it. I remember it was about that same time where Jack Taylor came and brought this message on the kingdom. It was like a bomb went off. And it was very simple, but it was like the, the repercussions of that. I, I, I can't explain the impact it had on my life, but it was like just everything expanded. And all of a sudden, there, were a, there was a place for so many of these truths that I, had, that I had glimpses of, but I didn't know where they would fit. So they became irrelevant. It was like leftover parts. Around that time, someone was telling me, I, I read this, someone had me a little book by, it was a young prophet, uh, he was the janitor at one time out at Bethel Church in Redding, California, Bill Johnson's church. And he was a Bible student there, and uh, he was also the janitor, and he was a weird little dude. He was a prophet, and uh, so he would have these weird encounters, and uh, he, would, he would tell them while he's cleaning around, hey, by the way, pastor, you know, I saw this, such and such happened, or, you know, the Lord showed me this. Like one day he told them, he said, hey, last night I had an encounter with the Lord. The Lord told me that the Chinese uh, government, the, the higher-ups in the Chinese, they have made these three policy changes, and he listed them. And they thought, okay, whatever, you know, keep, whatever, kid. So like two days later, the CNN comes on, Chinese leaders just rolled out new policy in three areas. Like, whoa, okay. So they started tracking this thing, and they realized this kid's got, he, he's on to something. Well, one day he told them, he said, uh, last night I went up into a vision, and I saw this hand pounding on a big wooden door, pounding a document. And the Lord told me it was Martin Luther's hand. And he said, this is Martin Luther. He was part of a Reformation generation. The message of his generation was salvation by faith. And he told them, you too belong to a Reformation generation. And whereas the message of Martin Luther's generation, the Reformation under him, was salvation by faith, the message of your generation will be the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And this will be a message that will, that will be emphasized in this generation. And it's going to cause a revolution, a reformation. And then the Lord told him this. He said, and as a sign to you, there's going to be an, a, a comet that's going to come by planet Earth that astronomers do not know about. They're going to discover in the very near future. So he, as he's mopping the floor one day, and one of the pastors come, he tells them this, and they okay, whatever, kid. Next day, someone let Bill know. Bill gets his cup of coffee, getting ready to go to the church, turns on the news, and they announce, we just discovered a comet. 
So he said, get that janitor kid in here, in the staff meeting. Tell us what the Lord told you. And they said some people, they said, research this comet. They found the last time it passed by planet Earth was in Martin Luther's day. Signs in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Sometimes there are things so crucial to God's purposes that he will do acts of nature that no man can manipulate as a sign to us. This message of the kingdom, I believe, is going to be the message that's going to bring Jesus back. Now, I don't know if that's going to be 20 years or 40 years or 60 years or three weeks. I kind of think it's not going to be three weeks. Uh, but, uh, but I do believe that this is, good, this is a crucial message, and it's something that's going to recalibrate the church. Because again, when we only look at the church, when, when our reference point, when we're church-centric, then the church becomes more than God intended, but ultimately less because we've unplugged from the source. So the kingdom of God is the source for the church. The ecclesia is the representative people of the basilea, of the kingdom of God. And there are a lot of implications on that. For those of us who are pastoring, the fact is that it's not about our church. It was a couple of weeks after Jack was there the first time, and Christopher was preaching that morning, and I was fervently taking notes. He thought I was listening to him, but the Lord had spoken to me. And uh, I don't know, I don't remember what, yeah, there you go, yes, just, just like he prayed this morning. And uh, it, uh, the Lord spoke to me, and this is what he told me, he said, the church is not the end, it's the means to the end, the kingdom is the end. And then he told me this, he said, if you make the church, this church, your end, you will inevitably be pulled into catering to people. So as leaders, we've got to tie into the greater organization, the kingdom. And when we do that, then suddenly the church takes on its, its true perspective, it takes its place, and it becomes the organization with which we can take risks because this is not the end. This is just the means to the end. And so we've got to be willing, at His command, to take risks with this earthbound organization. The expression, the, the called out ones, the legislative body connected to the kingdom on the earth. And so we really need to define what this idea of the kingdom is. It's very, very important. So what is the kingdom of God? In our vernacular, in our modern ideas in English, we think of a kingdom as a place. It's like a, a, a realm. But that is not what the, the, neither the New Testament or the Old Testament. Matter of fact, the Old Testament word that we translate kingdom is malku, M-A-L-K-U if I remember right, Malku. And uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see that it's not a domain, but it's dominion. So if you look where Jesus is talking in Matthew 4, he's, he's, he's preaching the gospel or the good news. But the good news is not just general good news. It's good news about a specific idea. And that idea is the kingdom. So God's kingdom is good news. Well, what is kingdom? The English word kingdom is really a compound word. It's king's dominion. The king's dominion. So it's the good news about the king's dominion. Now, a subset of that is the, how we get in the kingdom, and that's through Christ's death. But that doesn't, that's not even emphasized until, like we said, Matthew 16 this morning. It wasn't until Matthew 16 he began to talk about how he must suffer and die. The real good news, that's the entrance, that's the introduction, that's how we get in. But the cross is not the end, the cross is the entrance. And if we're not careful, what we do is we enter the portico of this mansion that God has given us called the kingdom, and we hang out under the front door at the threshold and just talk about the threshold. And we can't minimize the cross. It's an amazing, amazing thing. But the, the cross is a means to an end. It's the entry. It's not the gospel itself. The real good news is that there is a new king in town and that he takes his dominion and he imposes it on this fallen world. And that's the good news. And we see this in several ways. In the Old Testament, one verse that really brings out the meaning of the kingdom well is when Nebuchadnezzar was stripped of his power. Do you remember that? where he has this dream, and, and uh, there was a, a, a tree that was cut down to the stump. 
and, uh, and there was the watcher declared by Edict of the Watcher that he's going to be removed. Well, it says that then a watcher showed up and declared, the kingdom has been removed from you. He still lived in the same place. He was still honored as a king, even though he was literally sent out to pasture. And then after seven years, he was restored. It, it's not that he left the place. It's that the authority, this, this kingdom authority, the right to rule, literally lifted off of him, and he was not able to function in that role anymore. Which is an interesting thought for you and I, because a, a tributary of that thought, what kingdom authority is a very real thing. I don't know if you've ever met somebody that carries great authority in a given realm, and something happens and they're removed from office. You ever been around, especially when it's spiritual authority, where maybe there's a man or a woman of God that's had tremendous weight in the things of the kingdom, and maybe they go through a moral failure and they're removed? You ever been around someone like that? And all of a sudden, it, it, they walk in the room and it's like there's something missing that used to be there. And it's almost as if they're, even they're physically, their stature is smaller. And you realize what you were interacting with previously was authority from the kingdom of God. There was something beyond that person that when you interacted with it, it demanded a respect and an engagement from your heart. And now that's gone and you realize they're just a man or a woman. That's what they were before, but there was, there was this unseen element on them. That's what came off of Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom left him. The dominion, the, the right to exercise dominion was lifted off his life. It's the Hebrew word malku. It's the word that we translate kingdom. It was removed. The right to rule lifted off him. In, in uh, Luke chapter 19, I want to say it's verse 17, or, uh, but it, it says that there was a, a nobleman who went off to receive for himself a kingdom. That's how it says it in the King James Version, and that's a good rendering of the Greek. A king or a nobleman went off to receive for himself a kingdom, and while he was gone, some of his people rebelled. And so when he returned, now with the authority to rule, what does that mean? It means just what it says. That, and, and see, the, the hearers of, of this parable that Jesus was telling would have fully understood what he meant because their king, King Herod, had done that very thing. Herod was part of the Hasmonean dynasty. They were kind of Jewish half-breeds that were proselytized into the Jewish religion. And he had gone to Caesar and said, will you grant me the kingdom over Judea? Will you grant me the right to rule? And when he came back, he came with a kingdom. It wasn't a place. It was the right to exert his will over a place. The kingdom was not the place. It was the right to rule. It was the authority. So when you and I talk about the kingdom, what we're talking about is the exertion of the will of God through the power of God. It's authority that comes upon us. When we talk about praying His kingdom come, His will be done, it's His kingdom, His rule, that causes His will to manifest in the earth. It's it, the, the, the authority, when we talk about kingdom, you can't separate this concept of the kingdom from authority. The Greek word that is most usually translated authority is exousia. It's, it is power. It is, you can put it this way. It's authorization from the author to exert authority. Only God has innate authority. Everyone else operates in delegated authority. But God, being the author, can authorize people to function in authority. He extends to them the right to rule. So that when we have kingdom authority, here's, here's a, this to me is fascinating. When we have authority in a given realm, you become, you know, whether you're on a job and you're, you're extended authority by the owner of the company for you to be the lead person in some sector of the, or you're, maybe you become a pastor of a church. Now you have authority in that realm. That authority is to carry out God's will, but it's also the authorization from heaven to exert your will and your fingerprints all over that thing. Now you'll give an answer for what you produce, but it is the right to do so from heaven. And that's a very important thing for us to understand because when we 
resist human authority in a spiritual role? That is a very, very serious violation of the kingdom of God. When somebody is delegated the right to rule, they have the right to put their fingerprints on that thing. And it's not up to us to question that. Remember, we had a number of years ago, we had an elder in our church that ended up leaving, and uh, he was, he, he, I, I didn't find out until after he was gone, he was telling people he was going to start his own church because he's more spiritual than I am. And I remember thinking, I thought, maybe he is. I, I don't know. I mean, how do you measure that? You know, how do you measure spiritual? You know, the time spent in prayer? I, uh, you know, I know he's, he's better faster than me. It was amazing how he would fast. How do you measure that? But here's the problem. It was irrelevant. Because God doesn't call us because we're spiritual. God just calls people. And just because we're more spiritual or less spiritual. I remember years ago when I was working at Teen Challenge, one of the staff members, we were sitting around for a Bible study one morning, and he just rolls it out. He said, you know, I mean, fact is, I'm the most spiritual one among us. I was shocked at the guy's arrogance to say that because I knew in my heart I was. I'm totally serious. When he said that, I thought, I can't believe how arrogant he is. I know I'm more spiritual. And then it was like God put a mirror in front of me. Oh, my goodness. I thought I'm just more deceitful and savvy about it, you know. I thought I was, which God took me on a journey and showed me how unspiritual that was that I was comparing myself with. That, those things are irrelevant. It's not about who's most gifted. It's not about who's most spiritual. It's about who did God choose? And when we see that, there needs to be the fear of God on us that, oh, this person occupies that role. And I'm not gonna, I'm gonna respect authority. Even if I can't respect their personhood, maybe there's things about them that doesn't garner my respect. That's irrelevant, man. I've got to honor that position because this is a serious thing. And to violate authority is to violate God Himself. It is a principle of the kingdom. The kingdom of God operates on authority. They are interchangeable. You can't talk about the kingdom and be biblical without recognizing we're dealing with something called authority. It's authorization from the author himself. And he sets aside a place and he says, I've given this person the right to make decisions in this realm. If they make the wrong decisions, they'll answer to me. But it's not up to us to shape them in our image. Matter of fact, I have found that God will intentionally, he's, put it this way, God is very practical. While he's working something out of a leader, he'll use it on me in the process. As long as it's there, God will deal with them, but he'll also be very practical and use it on me to deal with my character. And will I look beyond that and say, I'm going to honor that position? Because I'm going to honor God. That is a kingdom principle. Authority is the right to use power. And it is part and parcel to the kingdom. The kingdom is a matter of authority. Because the, the word literally means the dominion of the king. It's the right to rule. And so when the nobleman in, in uh, Luke 19 goes, it says he went to receive for himself a kingdom. He went to the Caesar and said, hey, could I have this place, could I exercise your rule on your behalf over this area? And he would be told, yes, then he would be known as a vassal king. And he would operate under the authority of the king of kings, the Caesar, and he could, and we see this all down through ancient history, whether it was Persia or Babylon or the Roman Empire. They had vassal kings. So when we talk about the kingdom, that's what we're talking about. Every one of us are kings and priests. And we are vassal kings. We rule under him. And we operate in kingdom authority within the realm dedicated to us. And depending on how you are faithful within that realm that you've been dedicated authority, you can actually increase your authority or diminish that. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to do it. I would encourage you to do it. Study. There's, there's two forces within the kingdom of God. 
there's authority and there's power. And those are two separate things. Matter of fact, tomorrow we're going to look at, we're going to get into spiritual gifts and get into then Ephesians 4, uh, the fivefold ministry. Because the fivefold ministry are the governmental, uh, the governing authority within the kingdom. Fivefold ministry. Matter of fact, let's just do a little precursor here. Let's use the whiteboard. In the New Testament, we have, we have three sets of spiritual gifts. There are the Romans 12 gifts, okay? Remember those? Those are from the Father. Then we have the Ephesians 4 gifts. Those are from the Son, very clearly. It was Jesus who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors and teachers. The Father didn't give the fivefold. Jesus did. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, we have what? Spiritual gifts. They're all spiritual. But these are the gifts from the Spirit of God who grants them severally as He wills. So we have gifts from the Father, gifts from the Son, and gifts from the Spirit. The gifts from the Spirit are gifts of power. They're the ability to do with God what you could not do without Him. Prophecy, healing, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. It's the supernatural empowerment of the Spirit to enable us to do things we couldn't do without Him. They're miraculous. And God always calls us to do something more than we're able to do on our own. And so it demands that we live under the anointing and do that. It's, that's what supernatural ministry is about. But the gifts from Jesus are different. The gifts from Jesus are not gifts of, the, of power. It says, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But what does it say of Jesus? All authority is given unto me, so therefore go. And the authority gifts are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They are governors in the kingdom. And so they are those who are the architects and the overseers within the kingdom of God, and they have the authorization to put their fingerprints on things, to govern according to what they see as, fit, as best. Now, that's important for us to understand when we're under authority. When we're in authority, it's also important for us to understand, oh my goodness, I'm going to give answer for what I do. So I don't want to just do my thing. I want to make sure that my thing is his thing. But it's authority. It's the authorization to do these things and to release. See, authority is the permission to use power. And so in a very real sense, these gifts, these are, these are like the badge, okay? You've got a badge that determines your rank. These, this is the gun at your side. Now, you can have people with a high-ranking badge and a little caliber of gun. Or you can have a guy with a big caliber of gun and a little bitty badge. Not everybody has the same power, do they? Not everybody has the same authority. And not everybody that has authority walks in it because they don't realize it. And we need to understand that the authority that we have because we'll leave a lot on the table. There are things that don't get done within the kingdom because we don't understand the kingdom is the king's dominion. And God is calling us to do things and God's calling us to exert His will through our life. And so we need to understand this thing of authority and we need to understand power. So, now how do you get more power? Terry until you're endued with power from on high. Ask for a greater anointing. Cry out for a greater anointing. You can get an upgrade in your caliber. You, know? you might have had a 22 and now you got a 38 or whatever. But you're asking for more authority, more power in a given area. And we're not to be shy about that. What did Paul say? Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And the, the emphasis here was these gifts here, the power gifts. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. We're not to be shy about that and say, well, I'm going to seek his face and not his hand. Try that with your wife. Honey, I love your face, but your body turns me off. You know, it's, hey, it's a package deal. You know, his face and his hand, it's him. We're to seek him. We, we want everything that he has for us. And so we seek more uh, tarry until you are endued with power. We can, 
receive more power by crying out for more power, for impartations. And there are times where God will uh, bring you on that journey. And often, the journey of receiving more power is you're, you're up against things that aren't moving and you know it's part of your assignment and you're frustrated and God will entice you. He'll, he'll draw you into the pursuit by the frustration, the ineffectiveness you're living in presently. You ever been there? I have. Now, there's some areas in my life right now that I know I don't have what it takes to do what God's called me to do. And I'm in a journey right now. I'm saying, God, you've got to give me more. But I also know that sometimes the way that works is God will awaken a hunger in my heart and it'll take me through a process that seeking actually changes me and qualifies me to handle what I've been crying out for. And that's why it's not an event, it's a process of seeking Him. I don't just ask and He drops it on me. There's this thing where I enter into this process and there's this hunger and it's, it's humbling and saying, God, I don't have what it takes, I need more. And if we'll stay in that pocket, the process of prayer actually changes us so that we can qualify to carry more. That's how power works. Well, how does authority work? How do we get more authority? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is very clear. If you look in the passage of Paul, he's, he's talking about, he uses two Greek words in that passage, it's kanon or canon, where we get you know, the canon of Scripture, it's a measurement. And then the other one is metron, where we get the word metric or measurement. Both of those terms are spiritual, that's spiritual terminology for a measure of authority or a measure, of, it's a delegation of authority. And Paul is saying, I love the NAS. If you look at the New American Standard Version in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and you're familiar with the passage where he says, you know, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. Well, you read on in that passage and Paul is saying, he said, you know, that we have a, he said, I'm not going to brag about work done in another man's, and the NAS says field, another man's field. And I, if I remember right, the Greek word there is kanon. He's saying that God delegates fields or portions or allocations of authority. You have a, an allocation of authority and you're to exercise that in a given place. As a father, I have authority over my household. And I better exercise that authority. Because I'm going to tell you, nature, supernature, they say nature helps, hates a vacuum. Supernature really hates a vacuum. And if you don't exercise your rule, supernature will. There are forces that are looking to encroach in your area and exert their will. And hell wants to show up in the realm that you're required to rule in. And so as a father, I need to make sure that I'm exerting that spiritual authority, not in some domineering way, you know, kids do this and you're my remote kid, you know, and, and all that. Not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being engaged and caring about the spiritual condition of my children and my wife and of our household and staying engaged on those things. If I don't exercise that authority, someone else will. Same thing in the church. I know in our church there are times where I can feel spiritual activity and I don't, I don't have the luxury of being checked out because if I, if I am, somebody, there's other things that want to exert their influence. And so we need, to, we need to exercise that authority. We have an allotment. But how do we grow that? Paul said, it, it's an interesting way he puts it. He said, I am going to, he said, I will pour into you. He said, I'm not going to brag about work in another man's field. That's somebody else's realm of authority. He said, but I'm really going to be faithful in the area that's delegated to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard. He says, I'm going to pour into you guys. And as you grow, the people that he was speaking to, the Corinthians, he said, he said, I may not be an apostle to them, but surely I am to you guys. You see, Paul understood apostolic ministry is relational. He wasn't an apostle to everyone. Some of the ways people use this terminology, well, I'm an apostle. Well, that's great. You might be in your city, but you're not in my church. I don't know you. You can't just come in and start exerting that authority. That's like me saying, I'm a dad. So I'm coming in your house to tell your kids what to do. That ain't going to work. You know, that, that, that's, I'm a dad in my house. I'm not a dad in your house. And you may be an apostle or a pastor in your city, but you're not necessarily in another one. And so we need to understand there's this allocation of authority. So Paul says, I'm going to be really faithful. I'm going to pour into the, you people. 
And as you grow, you'll place a greater demand on me. In other words, mature people will require a more mature minister. So it's going to cause me to grow. And then he says, and then God will allow me to preach the gospel beyond you. What he was saying is that you can literally outgrow your assignment. And God will say, I have to, I have to move your fence line. I'm going to have to give you a greater reach because you've grown beyond what I've allocated to you. So you tarry to get more power, but you live faithfully and exert. You serve well in the area you've been given, and God will expand your fence line. God wants to promote us in the kingdom for the right motives. The motives are, God, I want to see your kingdom come, your will be done. I want to see things work within the realm delegated to me. And if God finds that you've been faithful in what you've been given, he says, man, I can trust this one. I'm going to have him take what he's been doing there and move into the next neighborhood or in the next, you know, fill in the blank. So God will grow our authority. And we need to be hungry for those things, to grow up in God, to operate in more power and authority. And all of this has to do with the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a matter of the king's dominion, but it's supposed to come through us. We're taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God doesn't just happen. God operates. I, I remember it was several years ago now, I was at a, a in Des Moines, there was some kind of political, Christian political gathering. This one guy would foot the bill and feed all the pastors steaks, and they'd parade a bunch of po politicians through Christians, and we'd listen to them. It was, it was fascinating. But they were on like 792nd speaker for the day, and uh, I was just kind of, uh, just my head was spinning. And I, so I was, I don't even remember who was talking. I was tuned out. I was sitting at the table, and the Lord spoke to me, and He said, the kingdom is an aristocracy. And I'd never thought of that. Okay, now I'm going to have to admit, I might lose my man card over this one. Uh, the night before, my wife, it was a Sunday night, and she liked this show called Downton Abbey. And I, I know what it's about. I, I hate to admit, I watched some of Downton Abbey with my wife, so I might lose my man card. But there was a show the night before on that whole era of history. And what Downton Abbey is about is this, the aristocratic uh, people of, you know, the British Empire, they had these huge manors and, you know, they had titles and lands and all that. Well, because of the Industrial Revolution, they weren't able to sustain the wealth of these vast estates. They had to start selling them off just to keep the thing going because at one time it was a, a you know, an agricultural system that was able to sustain. Now with the Industrial Revolution, they weren't making the kind of money they were and so what was happening, it was an interesting phenomenon at that time, that new American money from the Industrial Revolution was marrying into the old money of the aristocratic system in England. And so that was the backstory. This, this wealthy gal married in, and then... So the story was that uh, the, the heir to this manor had died, this, this young guy. So now they were looking for an heir for this, the lord of the manor, the duke or the earl, whatever he was, to give his inheritance to, and all he had was daughters. And so here's this American lady, very wealthy, marries in. She has to forfeit her vast fortune because in, under English law, a woman couldn't be the, the one to inherit it. It's kind of a ripoff for her. It was her money, and now she married this dude, and they took it all. So they're looking for an heir. And uh, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? So she, uh, the next, so they find this heir to the title. And the guy was a barrister, he was an attorney, but it wasn't as respectable as in our culture. He was just a commoner that had, had a bloodline, and so they brought him in, and they're going to groom him to take over this vast estate. And I'd just seen this the night before, my wife and I were watching it, and this was what the Lord reminded me of. This guy, he was, he was living on the manor now, he had this, his own place, and had this valet that would dress him every morning, and it was real awkward for him. I don't know about you, but that would be very awkward for me too. They'd button his shirt, he'd stand there, and they'd hold his hand up, they'd button his, you know. And uh, so he tells the, the Lord of the manor, he said, hey, I was wondering if I could fire my valet. And he said, why? Is he not doing his job? He said, no, he, he's real good at buttoning shirts and all that. It's just awkward. I don't need it, you know. That's not, I wasn't raised this way. And this is the part the Lord reminded me of. I'm sitting there, and the Lord told me, the kingdom is an aristocracy. 
the Lord of the manor said, perhaps you should look at this a different way. You're going to rob this man of an honest livelihood for which he has trained his entire life. He's insinuating he's at the top of his career. He gets to serve you. And you're going to rob him of that because you're uncomfortable. He said, what you need to realize is your position exists to support all these people on this estate. And it kind of tweaked his mind. Because he looked at it as, oh, this is so selfish and indulgent and I just feel awkward. When in reality, he was looking at it as they existed for him and he didn't need it. When in reality, his royal position existed for them. And they needed him to occupy it. And that's what the Lord reminded him of. And he told me, he said, the kingdom of God is an aristocracy. It's rule by family. Under the British system, what a king would do is he would have cousins and aunts and uncles and, you know, these, and they would delegate portions of their kingdom to family members because they could trust them. And so lands would be delegated to these family members, and that was how they would keep their hands on these vast lands way overseas. They would send, send their family over there to rule and reign for them. The kingdom of heaven is rule by royal family. You and I are sons and daughters in the kingdom. And our position exists for this world. And the Lord began to deal with me about, you've, if you're uncomfortable with your royal position, you can't do what I've called you to do. Let me just pause there and take a, another run at this from a different angle. It was probably 20 years ago now I discovered a guy named Bill Johnson. Christopher. Christopher's always the one that buys books and then tells me about them. So he, he buys them and I get to read them or I get to listen to it. And I'm very grateful for that. And, uh, but he told me, he said, hey, you've got to hear this guy, Bill Johnson. You're going to love him. And I started to listen to him and I loved a lot of what I heard. But the other thing I thought, this, is, this was my secret conversation with myself. Man, he sounds like word of faith. I don't know, man. Kind of, that's word of faith stuff. Now, if you know your recent church history, Bill Johnson is not word of faith. Word of faith wasn't even a Pentecostal movement. Word of faith became a Pentecostal movement, but it predated the Pentecostal movement. It was some Baptists and the Presbyterians who found healing in the word and they weren't exercising a gift of faith. They were exercising faith in the Word. And they began to see some traction and people healed and delivered. And out of that came this, it was a movement that had a great respect for the Word. Now, when the Pentecostal charismatic movement hit at the turn of the last century, a lot of those jumped in and it became part of the Pentecostal movement. But it wasn't gift-based. That's a valid way to get to healing. But it was word-based, which is, by the way, another valid way to get to healing. And so they were, they were looking at the Word and they were finding health. They were finding prosperity in the Word. Now some of you, especially in this day and age with all the stuff going on on the internet, that rubs you wrong. Oh, prosperity gospel. I'm telling you, there is prosperity in the gospel. When I got saved, I was much more prosperous because I wasn't buying drugs anymore. I wasn't getting, going out and getting hammered and spending. I wasn't, you know, there was a lot of things I used to do that cost a lot of money that I wasn't doing anymore. And all of a sudden, I had extra to go around. And I could be generous with other people. And when God, when you found faith with little, God will make you faith with much. But I would, I would read Bill Johnson, and I thought, man, this kingdom theology really sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel. And to me, it's fascinating that they end up at a, many of the same conclusions, but approaching it from a different angle, scripturally. They're looking at different verses, but they arrive at the same conclusions. This kingdom theology. And so, and I, I, didn't, I wasn't word of faith. I, I'm familiar with it just because I've had a lot of friends that were, and I they like to study church history. But the, what brought me to some of these conclusions was following the line of the kingdom as you begin to study it out. You, you realize it is an aristocracy. And just like Esther, you have been brought to a royal position for such a time as this. 
But if you are not comfortable with that, if you're not comfortable with living in blessing, you're not going to be able to exert the influence that God intended for you to exert. Because you end up apologizing and backing away from some of the very things that God has for you. And so the, the kingdom of heaven is a, an, a, a vitally important subject. I believe that that young prophet heard from God. I believe it is one of the primary messages of this generation. The restoration of the kingdom. And that enables us to have a much wider view than just our little church thing. That's why you look in this room and there's, there's different churches represented. You know why you guys can rally around and support one another? Because you're kingdom men and women. There was a time where you wouldn't see that. It, would, it had to be your thing or no thing. There was a time where churches wouldn't because they were all in competition. But now we realize it's a bigger thing than the church. The church, there's different expressions of the church, but it's about the kingdom. And when we really get that viewpoint, we can partner together under kingdom authority. So the good news of the kingdom of God is a vitally important subject matter in this day and age. So when we talk about the good news of the king's dominion, now, if I can kind of bring this for a landing here. Word of faith and kingdom theology end up at some of the same conclusions. There is a reason that when you hear those two different streams in the body of Christ talk, you know what one of the commonalities is? We talked about it this morning. The goodness of God. God is good. The word of faith movement has a firm conviction. God is good. It's not His will for His people to live in sickness and in torment and in poverty. Grinding poverty that drives people to do things that they shouldn't do. God's a good Father. There's that conviction. Well, kingdom theology will come along that same line. When, when the Bible says, when it speaks of the good news of the king's dominion, here's the thing. It's not good news that the king has dominion unless he's good. If God is all-knowing and he's all-powerful, you can't hide from him, you can't outrun him, but he's not good, this is not good news. We're in trouble. The only reason it's good news that this king has dominion is because the king who exercises the dominion, him, is he himself very good. And so at the, at the base of a strong kingdom theology in the New Testament, when they would come with the good news of the king's dominion, the good news was that the king himself is good. He can be trusted. He is for us, not against us. He does not hold our sins against us. When we have that strong theology of the goodness of God as the foundation of our faith, then that becomes good news. And so this thing, it, get, it brings us back to where we were this morning. A, a th heart theology. Who do you say that he is? If you still buy into this satanic accusation against God that was spawned in the garden that God can't be trusted, you will not be able to carry the kingdom of God. The supernatural lifestyle, the supernatural, supernatural ministry, ministering in the power of the Spirit flows directly from a kingdom theology. The kingdom is not a matter of words but of power, Paul said. If you really have a kingdom ideology... There's only twice that Paul, in all of his writings, directly defines at least a facet of the kingdom. Twice he says, the kingdom of heaven is. Blatantly says it. Both times, which is interesting to me, he first tells you the kingdom of heaven is not blank, but it is blank. Why does he have to correct this? Why is it that only two times that Paul even mentions what the kingdom is, he prefaces it by first telling us what it isn't? Isn't that interesting? Why would he do that? It's because of our tendency to wrongly define what the kingdom of God is. 
He said the kingdom of God is not a matter of words, but of power. You can't reduce the kingdom to a, a theological discussion. The kingdom of God is His dominion being exerted. It's not just talk. It's not moral platitudes. It's the kingdom of God breaking in. Jesus said, if I drive out Satan by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. One of the primary manifestations of the kingdom of God is deliverance from evil, oppression. The kingdom of God has come upon you when deliverance happens. It's not a matter of words, but of power. And, and in 1 Corinthians, he says, or that's, that's Romans, that, that's 1 Corinthians. I want to say it's chapter 4. Romans says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You can't reduce it to external rules. It's an inside job. It's God, the kingdom of God starts within you and it emanates from there. Uh, e. Stanley Jones, he, he was a brilliant missionary statesman. He wrote a book on the kingdom and he had this wonderful statement. It was something like this. He said, if the kingdom of God doesn't start with the individual, it never really starts. But if it ends with the individual, it truly ends. What's he saying? See, liberal theology, like liberal politics, wants to deal with societal problems, but ignore the individual inception of those very problems, where it starts. But the problem with us as conservative theologians and at conservative politics sometimes, we want, to, we want to ignore institutional evil and the overarching societal problems, and we just want to deal with the individual evil. And it's both. So what E. Stanley Jones was saying is, if the kingdom of God doesn't start with the individual, if you don't transform the individual, you'll never transform society. But if it ends with just transforming the individual, it truly ends. So the kingdom of God was meant to start in the individual and it emanates from there. It's an inside job. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. In the Holy Spirit, in us, it's a transformation. But then it's to, what, we, what do we pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Not just in the individual heart, on earth as it is in heaven. So true kingdom theology will begin to unravel the complexities of societal ills. It'll begin to affect those things because as we get right and we begin to live right, God gives us the wisdom to begin to unravel these things through the church. The church is the agency of God's rule that He releases it on the earth. And so this whole thing of the kingdom, we've got to have, we've got to have a theology that it's rooted in the goodness of God. Because if you're not convinced of the goodness of God, you can't carry the kingdom. You won't be able to sustain the supernatural lifestyle. For many years, I would pray for the sick, and this is how I would pray. God, if it's your will, if it's your will, Lord, if it's your will. And probably the first 20 years of ministry, that's how I prayed. And I saw one person healed, and I was more shocked than they were. I'm serious. I remember it was a buddy I talked to on the phone on the way down here. I prayed for a headache, and he said, it's gone. I said, are you sure? I kept grilling. I went, are you sure? <laughs> I, was, I was more shocked than he was. I couldn't pray in faith because I didn't have a conviction that God was good enough to want to lift that off his life. My idea of God was twisted. I was still buying into this satanic defamation of God's character that came out of Eden. When I began to be convinced of the goodness of God, I began to be able to pray with authority and believe God because I believe that God really wanted to do those things. And there's still a lot of people I don't see healed, but I've seen hundreds of people healed. The only difference was what, was what I believed. I believed in the goodness of God. And so like we started this morning, we have got to have our hearts healed. We need a revelation. What Christopher talked about this morning, the love of God not only defines us, it defines Him. It's the good God from which love emanates towards us, and He redefines who we are. But we've got to have our hearts healed. We need a revelation of His goodness. And the more you carry a revelation of the goodness of God, the more you will carry the good news of the King's dominion. That God's dominion is to be imposed on the earth and evil will unravel 
It can't stand before the goodness of God. But it takes some people to carry it. Does that make sense? And so we need a revelation of the goodness of God. So this idea, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, gospel evangelion, it's a compound word in the English, good news. That's what it means. Good news. Why is the news good? Because there's a, there's a new king that has dominion. And why is that good news? Because the king that exercises the dominion is good. At the essence of his character, he is a good God. And wherever you don't believe that in your heart, you need to confront it. I'm not saying that we give away, that we let loose of scriptures, that we live in tension, that God is a God of justice. God does exercise wrath, those things. But that is not his primary attribute. The primary thing is the goodness of God, out of which all those other things are manifest. God is good. And when we believe that, then we will have a gospel of the kingdom. And I believe that is one of the primary messages that heaven is trying to get across to us in this hour. God needs a a company of people that are convinced of his goodness. That when we lay hands on the sick, we're not doubting whether God wants to heal or not, or whether God wants to deliver or not. He is good. He's a good Father. If me as a poor expression of His fatherhood, and I want good things for my children, how much more? Now, He's also a wise Father. I wouldn't, if I had a Maserati, if I could afford one, I wouldn't give it to my 16-year-old to cruise around in. You know, I don't know if I'd give it to my 31-year-old. But... You know. <laughs> So God's goodness is also, you know, it's not indulgent. He's tempered by His wisdom, but His heart towards us is good. And when when we're going through hardship in life, and again, I said it this morning, when life seems to contradict what we know the Word says, we refuse to give an inch. I'm not going to interpret God through my circumstance. I'm going to interpret my circumstance through God. His His goodness is the lens through which I'm going to look at these things. And at the end of the day, when I'm forced to hold to a mystery, it's not mysterious if He's good. It's mysterious why this situation has not succumbed to that goodness yet. But the fact is, there's no question about this mystery. He is good. And so, this thing of, we talk about a supernatural school of ministry, supernatural lifestyle, supernatural environment, churches that operate in the supernatural, at the base of this thing, at the foundation, is a restored theology of God's goodness. That to the degree that we still retain this questioning of the character of God is to the extent that we will not be able to really live out the gospel of the kingdom. So what that demands is the our supernatural churches, our supernatural environments, a culture of the kingdom will demand elements of inner healing. It will demand that we learn to exercise and diagnose needs for deliverance because it's restored people, whole people, that are the ones that can represent the kingdom. They're the ones that can carry it. So here's the good news. we got a good king. He really is good towards us. And He wants to equip you to become the answer to all the needs around you. God is not reticent. He's not like, well, I don't know. I I mean, I'll release power on the African church because they need it. These guys have insurance. It's not God. God wants to equip us. So get your hopes up. Be able to receive. Sometimes the reason we're not operating in power in our life is we're not expecting it because we have all these All these reasons where God wouldn't want to do that with us, and it's not true. Man, He longs to equip you to operate in great power. Amen? All right, what time is it? Let me see. We're we're supposed to be done at 2.45. Wow, man, this is pretty good. All right, let's stand. (laughs) Let's stand up. I just want to pray for you. I want to encourage you, when you begin to read in in the gospel, the Gospels, when you read this phrase of the kingdom of God, it's not a place. Heaven is not the kingdom of God. It's where that kingdom, that dominion, that authority emanates 
from the throne. The kingdom of God is within you, Scripture says. We're not waiting to go into the kingdom of God. We have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. We're already into the kingdom. The proof of you being in the kingdom is you're submitted to His rule. And the way to submit to His rule, when you really see Him for who He is, you'd be a knucklehead not to surrender. Why would I not surrender to that? He knows everything. He wants what's best for me. He's willing to exert His power to get what's best for me. I'm taken care of. I would be, I'd be an idiot not to surrender to Him. That is the kingdom of heaven. And so, Father, I just I thank You, Lord, for Your goodness. Lord, we worship You. We thank You for the goodness of Your character. Lord, I thank You that such great power is restrained by the goodness of Your heart. That Your thoughts for, towards us are for good and not for evil. Lord, I thank You that You hold not our sin against us. Lord, when You called us, you already knew everything we'd ever do. You weren't surprised and you've never regretted that you've purchased us by, with your blood. Lord, I ask that you would renew our minds and help us to ride in on that, Lord, to live in light of that. And Lord, we're asking, God, that you would help us to live in light of the goodness of God. Hallelujah. And Lord, I'm asking, God, that you would give us a revelation of your willingness to share your power, your kingdom authority with your people. Lord, that you'd remove all doubts when we pray for the sick, Lord, because we're convinced of your goodness. Lord, let us be more surprised when people don't get healed. We thank you, Lord. The mystery, let the mystery no longer be why, why someone did get healed, but why they didn't. And Lord, we hold it in tension with your goodness. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Tell you what, go ahead and sit down. Let me share one more thing with you, okay? Because <laughs> we, we have a short time together. Uh, number of years ago, it was probably around that same time I began to teach on the kingdom. And uh, God is so good because he'll, he'll just leave little crumbs everywhere. If you're really looking, God is speaking all the time. So I'm walking through my daughter's bedroom. I've got a daughter that is, she's got cerebral palsy. She's 31 years old. or She's, she's going to be, th yeah, she, is she 31? Yeah, she's 31. And uh, anyway, she's, she's dependent on us, so she lives with us. That's one of those mysteries. I don't know why. I mean, uh, man, I've, I've seen tremendous miracles. I've seen it happen, and my own daughter is not healed yet. I don't understand, but I'll tell you what. Uh, I, I knew a missionary said he buried a son on the mission field. He said, I don't know why God didn't heal him. It's a mystery, but I ain't going to hell over a mystery. <laughs> That's good. I don't know why. God's good. One of these days, it'll give way. But I'm walking through her bedroom, and on on that uh, great theological resource, the History Channel, uh, there was this little story. I, or it was a cooking channel, I think it was. Anyway, what it was is I was reading in Matthew 13 about the leaven of the kingdom. Now, we read this morning in Matthew 16, he talked about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then in Matthew 13, he talks about the yeast of the kingdom. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, Beware, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. So what Paul says is anything that's referred to as yeast or leaven has a way of infiltrating and, and just infecting the whole lump, okay? So I'm walking through. I've been reading Matthew 13, wondering about that, and I walk through, and there's this guy in a white coat. He's at this big stainless steel table, and he takes this big old wad of dough. It's like 20, 30 pounds. Wham! He throws it down, and he said, this is San Francisco sourdough. And he said, this yeast is from 1862 or something. I'm thinking, that's gross. <laughs> and he explained what they do is every day they take like one sixteenth and they hold it aside and they infect a new lump overnight. And then they make bread out of the other. And they said, 
the same yeast strains have been used for well over 100 years. And then he went on and he said this. He said, you know what's interesting? He said, if I were to take, he said, if I let you steal a portion of this, which I won't, he said, you could take it and take it to New York, and within a month, it would no longer be San Francisco sourdough. It would be New York sourdough. He said, because the, the yeast in this dough interacts with the unique atmospheric conditions to create a unique expression of the dough. He said, so it would, he said, it's, you know, the salt water coming off the bay. He said, if you went to New York, it would, there's different things in the atmosphere that would change the taste. And so, you know, being a preacher, man, I'm thinking, bing, a little light bulb over my head. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? That we can go places and pick up the yeast of the kingdom, but it's going to have a different expression when we go back to the or place of our calling. And it's going to take on the, there's a feel to it that's going to be different. Pastor Dave, your church, you take the things we're talking about today, they're going to have a different expression at your church than Pastor Richard's church because they're different cultures. But the idea is this, that th this is how the kingdom works. A yeast, it a yeast was the first domesticated organism. They would take a single cell, put it in a lump, and that cell would quickly multiply into a yeast culture. And it would leaven the whole lump. And that's what God intends for you and I. That we become that singular expression and that we develop kingdom culture around us. And it's going to look different wherever we're at. But the way it works is, is that's why Jesus referred to not only the kingdom, but also the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as yeast, because yeast will quickly develop into a culture. It will infect everyone around you. And we need to have that idea. We need to have that at the forefront of our mind. When we become those who bear the kingdom of God and the greater revelation you have of His goodness, the more quickly it will multiply around you. And you can literally turn a whole company upside down with the yeast of the kingdom. A whole city can be turned upside down. A whole nation. But it's when we have that revelation of who He is. And so I want to encourage you. Man, start to ask the Lord about the kingdom. I believe we're going to spend eternity studying about the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign. And God always operates through layers of delegated authority, whether in the heavens above or on the earth beneath. And it's an aristocracy. He rules through royal family, you and I. Amen? All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break. Uh, we will get kicked back off at, uh, yeah, 3 o'clock. So, all right.